Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. This past weekend, I had the opportunity to finally get back to racing myself at my home half Ironman, the Boulder 70.3. Like everyone else there, I was thrilled to be back at a race, and with the way the Delta variant is surging across the country, I don't think I was the only one, quietly wondering if this might be the last one for a little while, unfortunately. At any rate, I've done this race more than, I think, 10 times now, and I always enjoy it, even if I had, uh, well, a bit of a crazy history going into it. In 2018, I was having a pretty good day. Uh, Upon finishing the first of uh, the two run laps, uh, there was a little rock that was in my shoe, and it was kind of bothering me and I was worried that if I kept running with it it was going to cause me problems on the second lap so I stopped and just you know sat down got my shoe off took the rock out and then kept going and when I finished I saw that I had locked down the fifth and final podium position in my age group and I was ecstatic because uh, after working really hard at this race many many years in a row uh, crawling up my age group very slowly never getting higher than seventh cracking the podium was a huge deal however a few minutes later a guy that had started later than me would knock me out of that spot when he finished beating my time by eight seconds that little rock in my shoe It cost me a podium spot. Well, this year, I'm at the top of my age group, 54 in the 50 to 54, and it's exceptionally hard to go well against the younger guys in the bracket. Still, I placed third in this age group in 2019, so I was kind of optimistic that I had a chance when the day began, even though I hadn't really tapered for this race. Uh, My coach and I had decided in advance this was going to be really more of a training day than anything else since my A race is coming later this year when I go to Indiana for Ironman Muncie in October. In any case, I got out of the swim, felt pretty good, and when I finished the bike, I had a really strong bike split, as is kind of the way I usually race, I was up into fourth. And as I was out on the run course, I was getting information from friends who were, you know, keeping an eye on the tracker, telling me that I was kind of going back and forth between fourth and fifth place for most of the run. I really gave it everything that I had for the duration of the race. And though I really couldn't run my best, I did the absolute best that I could on that day. And when I finished, I was feeling pretty good that I was fifth, which was a pretty good accomplishment given all of the factors I had leading up to that day. But when I looked at the tracker, there my name was listed again as sixth place. Turns out another competitor who had swam and biked quite poorly, to be frank, had run six minutes faster than anyone else in the age group and some 15 minutes faster than me and was listed as having an identical finishing time as I had, but his name was in fifth place. And it turns out he beat me by less than a second, less than half a second to be precise. I was completely gutted as you might imagine. Despite having had a really good day, all I could think about was all of the times and all of the places along the course that I could have picked up one second to get myself on the podium. Over the course of the next few hours, I, of course, eventually regained my perspective of what really matters. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to forget this particular sixth place anytime soon. But in the grand scheme of things, let's face it, it's simply not that big of a deal. And I want to share with you how I turn things around, both mentally and emotionally, because I think it's important because we all deal with these kinds of disappointments in our daily lives, not to mention triathlon. 
First and foremost, I grounded myself. If you're a longtime listener to this podcast, and you'll know that last year my youngest daughter was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And between that and the pandemic, 2020 was easily the worst of mine and my family's life. Well, speaking to her and then seeing her helped me easily put a few hundreds of a second lost in perspective pretty easily. Because let's face it, triathlon is not life and death. Life and death is really life and death. Second, I reached out to people who I knew would understand, allow me to vent, sympathize, and then help me see the positives of the day. And so I think it's really important that you have those kinds of people in your life. So identify them and be sure that people around you know that you're that person for them if they happen to need you for that kind of purpose. And finally, and I think this is the most important, focus on the positives of your day because they're always there and learn from the experience to be better moving forward. I had a really solid swim, the second fastest bike split in my age group, and one of the fastest bike splits among all of the male non-pros on the day. And my run, on no taper, really wasn't terrible. And I got beaten by the man who recently set the age group national record for the 5K in the entire country. So there's really no shame in being beaten by him on this particular run course. So moving on to the 70.3 Worlds next month in St. George and then Ironman Indiana beyond, I can confidently say that I'm in a pretty good place. So yes, this was a very difficult experience, and there's no doubt I'm going to ruminate on this sixth place likely, well, forever. I mean, after all, I still ruminate on my eight-second loss in 2018, but at least I know there will be more races in the future, and by continuing to work hard, being consistent, and always showing up ready to perform, I'm going to have days where I'll be on the other side of those close finishes, and that's going to make these hard-to-swallow results that much more palatable. The point is, don't let these tough moments define you or define your career as a triathlete. They should be a part of the definition, but they really shouldn't be the main focus. I now have three six places to my name, and all of them hurt a little bit, but all of them serve to motivate me and provide invaluable lessons to inform how I approach my races every time I'm on the start line. And best of all, they make the podium positions that I do secure, when I do secure them, that much sweeter to savor. On the show today, I'm going to continue my series related to injury and treatments that are maybe not always thought of as standard. As anyone who has experienced an injury knows, the worst possible thing to hear is that all you need to do is rest and give it time. And as athletes, we don't want to do that. We want to be able to to do something right now that's going to give us immediate results and get us back to doing what we love. Well, on the last episode, I looked at steroid injections, and today the topic is platelet-rich plasma, or PRP. And that's going to be coming up in just a short bit. Later, I'm going to bring you a conversation that I had with the editor-in-chief of Triathlete Magazine, Kelly O'Mara. Kelly has a pretty interesting story in the sport and is especially well-placed to give some great insights on the recently completed Olympics, the tri-battle between Lionel Sanders and Jan Frodeno, and why it is that American success at the ITU distance isn't always translating, for the most part, to similar successes in 70.3 and Ironman racing. Right now, though, I want to take a moment to remind you all of the great bonus content that is available to you by becoming a Patreon supporter of this podcast over at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. For the price of about a cup of coffee per month, you can get access to all kinds of interesting interviews available only to my supporters. And this month, supporters are going to get a special treat. On August the 30th, I'm going to be giving a live lecture via Zoom to all my Patreon subscribers on the science of tapering. 
Have you ever wondered how a taper should be structured and whether or not there are physiological or even psychological reasons that result in the benefits from a well-designed taper? Well, if you listened to episode 67, you heard me speak about some of this, but in this talk, I'm going to go much, much deeper. So visit my Patreon site today, become a supporter at any of the three levels that are available so that you too can join in on this sure to be informative and I am quite confident, interesting talk on the science of tapering. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks so much in advance for considering. In the last episode of the podcast, I began a series of medical segments on alternative treatments for acute and chronic injuries. In that first episode, I reviewed the science and the evidence on steroid injections for various ailments, including osteoarthritis, shoulder injuries, and Achilles tendinopathies, among others. And if you didn't hear it, I'd urge you to go back and have a listen, because in this episode, I'm going to take a look at another popular alternative treatment, and that is platelet-rich plasma, or PRP. Now, PRP has been investigated since the mid-1980s, but really exploded in popularity around the turn of the century when it started to gain a lot of media attention because of its use amongst elite athletes, especially those in professional sports. Now, the rationale for its use is rooted in our understanding of the physiology of injury and healing, and based on that, PRP kind of should work to help with many stubbornly chronic injuries. However, as is so often the case, the reality doesn't always live up to the hype, though there are definitely some instances where PRP can be beneficial. The question is, are those cases really relevant to triathletes? Now, before considering the research that has been done on PRP and its ability to improve healing, let's first consider the theoretical rationale for its use so that we can better understand why it's come to be so popular and why it should confer some benefits. Now, as I explained in the last episode, when tissue is injured, a carefully choreographed sequence of events takes place that, if all goes well, will lead to a restoration of normal tissue and return of pre-injury function. So after an acute injury, for example, the process of tissue repair occurs in three distinct phases. There's first the inflammation phase, and this occurs when there's an influx of inflammatory cells and inflammatory mediators, all of which are in response to the damaged tissue. Then there's the proliferation phase, which is when new tissue is sort of growing in the area. And finally, there's the remodeling phase. And the remodeling phase is really important because this is when the growing new tissue is remodeled into final perfect tissue that looks exactly like the tissue that was there before the injury occurred. Now, the progression within these phases and from one phase to another is very carefully regulated by locally expressed chemicals called cytokines and by growth factors that occur again within the tissue itself that's become injured. Now, unfortunately, in many types of tissues, and this is especially the case for tissues that are prone to chronic injuries, such as those within the joints, like ligaments or cartilage, blood flow tends to be very poor. And so the repair process can really be slow. And the reason for this is because it's limited by those things that are required for injury repair that is dependent on blood flow, such as the amount of oxygen in the area, nutrients that are uh, required by the cells that are growing, and the mediators of tissue healing that are uh, found within the blood, such as the growth factors and some of the cytokines that are going to be coming from the cells that are brought to the area by blood flow. 
None of these are available in adequate supply if the blood flow is poor, and so tissue healing can be delayed, further injury can occur, and you end up with a a chronic injury. At least this is one of the reasons for chronic injury. Other reasons for chronic injuries can be underlying disease processes, such as osteoarthritis, where the actual healing of the uh, damaged cartilage just doesn't happen the way it's supposed to. Uh, Instead of a remodeling phase, the cartilage is continuously taken up by inflammatory cells and you end up with no cartilage whatsoever. So there are different reasons for chronic injuries to occur, but whatever the, the underlying issue is, Much of it has to do with this nature of the uh, healing process and an inadequate amount of some of these growth factors and cytokines. Now, researchers at some point came up with the idea that if we could use an external source of some of these elements and inject it into the area of injury, this might go a long way to superseding the fact that there's inadequate blood flow. So rather than allowing or waiting for the body to provide some of these things through the limited blood flow, let's just give a booster by injecting some of it into the area. Now, isolating growth factors and cytokines is really difficult. So what if we had another source? Well, it's long been known that platelets, a component of the blood that plays an important role in blood clotting, which prevents bleeding, also happen to have very high concentrations of some of the same cytokines and growth factors that are necessary for tissue repair. So what, the researchers thought, would happen if we concentrated platelets and simply injected them into injured tissues? They did this. Uh, in lab animals, at least at first, and initial studies that were done this way showed some pretty encouraging results. In all of mice, rats, and rabbits, the use of concentrated platelet solutions seemed to promote healing to injured ligaments and tendons, as well as muscles, and this spurred the development of human trials. Now, one of the important things to understand about PRP is that the platelets and the plasma are taken from the patient themselves. These aren't donated from others. So this is what is called an autologous donation. So if you yourself are considering doing PRP for any type of injury or any type of treatment, you're not getting platelets from another person. Essentially what happens is you go in, a lab technician actually takes your own blood A process is then performed to separate the platelets and the plasma from the red blood cells, and then it's re-injected back into you. So it's an autologous donation. And the reason that the red blood cells have to be discarded is because the iron within the red blood cells, which is within hemoglobin, the important molecule uh, that transports oxygen, Iron is actually known to be detrimental to the healing process because it's very, very toxic to healing cells. So we dispense with the red blood cells, keep the platelets, keep the plasma, and then re-inject that into the uh, injured tissue. Now, another thing to understand about PRP is that there's really no one well-established or accepted process for isolating the platelets and the plasma. When the blood is extracted from the vein of the patient, that's done the same way in everyone. But how you then take the blood and separate the plasma and the proteins from the rest of the things you don't want, like the white blood cells and the red blood cells, that can be done differently. There are various machines, there are various spin rates of the centrifuges that are used, there are all kinds of different processes. There's also different kinds of volumes that are being used when they take the blood and when they re-inject it. And How it's processed and whether or not it's returned with or without white blood cells varies quite widely. And because of that, there's unfortunately a lot of variability in the results of the studies that have been done on the efficacy of PRP treatments. So it's 
because there's no one accepted way to do this, when you look at studies that actually evaluate the utility of PRP, you never know what you're comparing. You never know if you're comparing the same process from one study to another. Still, there's been so much research done at this point that I think it's still possible to draw some conclusions based on the availability of data that has been provided to this point. So let's begin first and, for, first and foremost with the one indication for which there is the most compelling evidence in favor of using PRP, and that is lateral epicondylitis. It's an inflammatory process of the elbow, and it is more commonly known as tennis elbow. Yes, I know, this is not exactly the scourge of triathletes, but it is truly the one injury where research has shown very favorable results for the use of PRP. I came across some pretty well-designed studies, some with more than 200 patients, which as you know from listening to this podcast in the past, that's a pretty large study. Most of the time I'm dealing with studies with like seven patients. So 200 patients, that's a good number. And in these studies, these patients failed conservative therapies. They were then treated with injections of PRP, and in those cases were 25% more likely to see improvement in pain than if they didn't get the PRP. PRP was also compared to injections with local anesthetics or even steroids and found to be better in all cases. So if you're a triathlete who happens to have tennis elbow, PRP is definitely worth considering. Okay, what about the tendinopathies that are more likely to be a problem for triathletes? Let's face it, tennis elbow, not really something that we encounter very often when running a triathlon. Well, the patellar tendon is frequently a chronic source, excuse me, is frequently a source of chronic pain. And uh, this is more commonly known as jumper's knee. It's uh, commonly encountered by athletes who experience pain when running, and it usually happens just below the kneecap uh, along the top of the shin. And PRP has been evaluated for treatment of patellar tendonitis. And in all of the studies that uh, have looked at this, PRP did show some promise by virtue of decreasing the symptoms of patellar tendonitis in the short term, but by the moderate term, unfortunately, really no difference between patients treated with PRP and those treated without it. Specifically, when I talk about short and moderate term, Patients with PRP had some symptom improvement by 12 weeks, but that improvement was no better than patients who didn't get PRP by 26 weeks after treatment. So we're talking really not a huge amount of benefit and certainly nothing long-lasting. Another common tendinopathy that triathletes suffer from is Achilles tendinopathy in the form of either a long chronic problem as tendinopathy or an acute issue as tendinitis. And here, the evidence has been really quite consistent and compelling. PRP is essentially of no benefit whatsoever in treating the Achilles tendon. There have been studies done on the PRP uh, for treatment of the acute issue, the chronic issue, and even in cases to augment surgical repairs of Achilles tendon rupture, where people have had a rupture of the tendon, they go in for surgery, and the surgeon injects some PRP to try and help the repair uh, take and actually heal better. And in all cases, the results have been in extremely disappointing, showing no benefit whatsoever. Another condition for which PRP has been evaluated is plantar fasciitis. And of course, this is a chronic and incredibly frustrating injury for triathletes and is refractory to just about all therapies. As I mentioned in the last episode, steroid injections might be of some benefit in these cases, but there is a downside to steroid injections for plantar fasciitis because there is an increased risk of rupturing the fascia when you use this treatment. 
Well, studies of PRP have been kind of equivocal for plantar fasciitis. There's no real huge amount of benefit, but there also does seem to be a small benefit uh, that seems to be in the range that steroids give. So there seems to be some equivalence to using PRP as you see with steroids in terms of symptom relief, but not necessarily in terms of functional improvement. But given the fact that there's a lower incidence of adverse effects seen with PRP versus steroids, it's probably not a bad idea to consider the use of PRP for this condition, although it should not be viewed necessarily as a panacea and certainly not as a curative type of, pro- of uh, process. Finally, another kind of tendon issue is rotator cuff tendonitis or tendinopathy. And this is a pretty common affliction amongst older triathletes as a result of swimming overuse. You'll recall uh, a few episodes ago, I talked about shoulder injuries and uh, how that uh, is commonly seen in older swimmers, especially those who increase volume too quickly. Uh, Well, PRP has been looked at to try and treat rotator cuff tendonitis or tendinopathy. And here too, PRP unfortunately has not been shown to uh, be of any benefit whatsoever. And for now, PRP can't be recommended in any way to treat this problem. Now, beyond tendinopathies, PRP has been advocated for other kinds of injuries and other kinds of problems as well. And here, the evidence has in some cases been positive, negative in others, and mixed in a few. As I mentioned in the previous episode, and as I talked about a little bit earlier, osteoarthritis of the knee is a chronic inflammatory condition in which the cartilage is slowly resorbed over time until the joint is left without any cushioning or lubrication and you end up with bone on bone. And this is an incredibly painful and debilitating process. Well, osteoarthritis of the knee is not helped by steroid injection, but there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that PRP might be beneficial for patients with this ailment. To date, There's really nothing out there that's really overwhelming or clearly demonstrates that PRP restores function or actual, you know, cartilage within the joint. But there are some studies that have produced results in which those who get injections with PRP do report improvements in pain and function versus other kinds of standard treatment modalities. Long-term benefits have yet to really be shown, but these studies are ongoing right now. And this is specific to osteoarthritis of the knee. Because when they've looked at osteoarthritis of the hip, there's been some similar findings in terms of maybe some relief of pain and improved function, but the degree of benefit here is much less clear and the duration of effect seems to be much shorter. So at this point, PRP is not recommended for osteoarthritis of the hip, but for osteoarthritis of the knee, there may be some benefit to PRP. The final area in which there's been a pretty robust body of research for the use of PRP is in acute injuries, such as sprains of the ankle and muscular strains or tears. With respect to ankle sprains, both common sprains, those that are, uh, you know, you twist your ankle and you end up with swelling in the ankle joint, and the more serious high ankle sprain, something that triathletes don't necessarily encounter but is seen more in contact sports like football or even in soccer, these have been evaluated and unfortunately... PRP hasn't been shown to be beneficial in either case. Uh, The same can be said for muscle tears or strains, where PRP has been evaluated in hamstrings, in glutes, uh, and even in biceps tears, and unfortunately has never been shown to be beneficial, either in reducing pain nor in restoring function when compared to any other forms of treatment. Now, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of things I've reviewed, so let me try and sum up all the evidence that I've cited. 
PRP really has one clear-cut indication and really only one uh, injury for which it has been compellingly shown to provide benefit, and that is in the treatment of tennis elbow. There's, you know, probably benefit for the use in osteoarthritis of the knee as well, but beyond this, the benefits really are tenuous and far from certain. PRP can be considered for the treatment of plantar fasciitis, but it's likely no better than other treatments. It's certainly no worse. Uh, And PRP has no benefit for the treatment of any of the tendinopathies, shoulder, knee, ankle, uh, Achilles, anything. And it is clearly not indicated for the management of muscle strains, tears, or ankle sprains. Now, I do want to take a moment to point out that no study to date has demonstrated any harm whatsoever to PRP treatment. And I think that's a really important point that needs to be, you know, highlighted. Because although there may not be any benefit to this treatment, except for tennis elbow and maybe osteoarthritis of the knee, if there is a risk of harm, then you really shouldn't be pursuing it. But when there's clearly no risk whatsoever... If you're desperate, and even if the science suggests that in general you shouldn't expect to see an improvement, that doesn't mean that there won't be an improvement for you individually. So when there's no risk of harm whatsoever, if there's an infinitesimal risk of benefit, then there's really no downside to giving it a try. The one thing that you should be aware of, however, is that PRP can be pretty tough on your wallet. In Colorado... Uh, PRP injections cost $800 a pop. And in many instances, you're going to be told, and I don't know how much of this is true because the studies don't suggest this, but you're going to be told you need more than one. Now, because this treatment is still considered pretty novel and often, you know, a research-oriented type of thing, insurance almost never covers this. So you're paying for this out of pocket. So at that point, you do need to really consider, okay, there's no downside to this. It's not going to hurt me. But is that infinitesimal possibility of getting any kind of benefit here, is it worth that 800 bucks? And that's something that you are really going to have to consider. And I would not, at that point, bring in the healthcare professional into that decision because clearly there's going to be a conflict of interest. At the end of the day, this is a personal decision, and hopefully most of you are not going to have to make it. Well, Do you have a comment about anything you heard on this segment or do you have a question for me to consider answering on a future segment? I hope you'll send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com. Yeah! 
Kelly O'Mara is the editor-in-chief at Triathlete Magazine. She previously worked for a variety of companies in the endurance sports space as a reporter, editor, and consultant. Her work has appeared in Lava, ESPNW, Outside, and Competitor. She most recently was a producer at KQED, the NPR station in San Francisco, and when she has time, she also races a lot. But for now, she's taken a couple of moments out of her busy day to join me here on the TriDog Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today, Kelly. Glad to be here. Uh, Kelly, I want to start just uh, right off the top and just discuss a little bit about your history in the sport, because I only came to recognize recently that you actually have been a pro triathlete for a little while. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I actually technically I do still have my pro license because they gave us all an extra year after COVID. <laughs> so, uh-huh. And it's actually very nice right now since you don't know which races are going to happen. You don't have to sign up in advance. You just show up. Oh, well, that's a good thing. So how long have you uh, been a pro? Uh, five, I think, guess this will be five years, six, five. Yeah. Um, I did, uh, I did Kona as an age grouper in 2016, 15. And then I went pro right after that, basically. Okay. And uh, what are some of the highlights from your career, both personal and professional? It's a good question. I always tell people, so the race that qualified me for Kona the year before was Ironman Wisconsin as an age grouper, right? Um, and there was no pro race that year. So I got second and over as an age grouper, but that also meant I was second overall, like because there was no pro race, which is really fun. If you could ever be second at a race, I like highly recommend it. It's like high fiving small <laughs> children. Yeah. People were like asking, right? I mean, for my autograph, right? Like it was, it makes you feel like very cool. So that was, that yeah. was, and I had so much fun at that race that, I mean, the Kona qualification was like a bonus. Like it wasn't even like my goal, or but it was just my parents were there. Um, my aunt and uncle lived down the street. So it was just like this huge thing. And it's, yeah, it was, it was the most fun I probably had at a race. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, had you had any wins at the pro level? No, 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 <laughs> no, no. I know it's a big field these days. Women, women have come a long way. And I mean, it used to be the pro field for women was small and, and now the, the women's field is really quite remarkable. It's, uh, it's it, really it's much, it's, Definitely bigger and deeper um, than it used to be. It's particularly true in the U.S. right now, partially because the majority of women who are pros in the world are kind of, and the major- the plurality are like U.S. U.S. based, and then also like the only races are happening in the U.S. right now. So every race yeah. is like, oh, cool, I'm going to lose to Daniela by 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Uh, right out of college, I kind of raced a little bit elite, and uh, and then I quit for a little while, and when I came back. Um, kind of just, I don't know, I mean, like came back to the sport, kind of got into it again, doing grad school. Uh, it had gotten a lot more competitive. Like it had just changed in that five years or whatever it was. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah. and, um, then you had some experience working with Sarah Gross, uh, at Live Feisty. Yeah. Sarah and I, I'm trying to think, did you ever go to the, I don't know what they call it now, the TBI triathlon business international conference. I have not, no. Well, it's it's the place to be. But Sarah and I met at that back when conferences were a thing and like drinking with people in, indoors was a, a thing you did. Oh, I, yes, I fondly remember those days. Right, yeah. right. And um, so, yeah, we actually met at that and uh, and she was putting together kind of like a women's thing. We always joke because that's what someone told us one time. I do the women's thing. Um, but about like women and sports. And so I worked with her on and off on some different projects for a while. And, um, 
And that kind of grew into doing like more and more women's triathlon uh, stuff for her. Cause it is just, I mean, my husband always jokes like, wait, is there a men's race? Cause it is just like, I don't know. I think some of the biggest stars on the women's side, I think it's really interesting. I think there's like a lot happening on, on that half of the sport for sure. Tell me about that. Cause you know, I think uh, from as somebody who pays attention to the pro side, but doesn't really pay that much attention either to men or women. I mean, I kind of know of some of the names, but I really don't, uh, it's not something I follow that actively. So, so what do you sort of see as sort of the, all of the things that are happening there? Well, so like, I mean, obviously we're about to go into the Olympics. And so, you know, when you talk about Olympic racing, um, I mean, yeah, whatever. There is still a lot of difference between differences between the men's race and the women's race, but the women's race is, I mean, the American women are just so good. And that's a large part because of like the college recruitment program and because of title nine and because like women come, you know, the American women, and this isn't just true in triathlon, like generally have like a big leg up on other countries because of title nine. And so the American women, and particularly now with like triathlon potentially becoming an probably becoming an NCAA sport, the American women are just really, really good at that draft Olympic level, which is just super interesting. Um, it's also a little brutal. Like there are girls that I you know know or meet like whatever in this larger circle in triathlon who are the fifth or sixth best American. They're like top 30 in the world, but they can't get a start because you can only field five people from a country at a race. Right. So, so that's right. just like super interesting to me. So, um, so anyway, I just, I think like the, the Olympic women's racing, super, super fun. Why super isn't that exciting. translating? Why isn't that translating into the 70.3 and Ironman distance then? Because I like, mean, aside from, up? yeah, like, I mean, we're seeing Heather Jackson. She's sort of the American that, you know, I think of immediately. Oh, why are as, the Americans good at the, yeah, I think that's an yeah. interesting point. Um, Good question. Probably like I, we might see it as like you kind of see a uh, people move up because like you always after an Olympic cycle see people move up to seventy point three or longer distance. Um, though a lot of them are coming from when you think about where they come from, they come from a swim background or a college track background, and those just aren't necessarily the same as an Ironman background. I mean, you did, yeah, 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 you did see Sarah True obviously move up to Ironman and do really, really well. I mean, she's like, I think one of the best athletes in the world. Um, she just like fried her brain in the heat a couple of times. I don't yeah. even know that she like, yeah. I do. I it actually, <laughs> I do. And it's, it, I spoke with both her and Sarah gross, uh, on the podcast right. and she's, she's, I, I love talking to her. She's great. Uh, she just had a baby. So, yes, uh, yes, I hope really. to see her. I hope to, I hope she'll come back next year. Maybe uh, the way, uh, Rini's coming back after her baby and we'll see if she does. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, you know, I just want to keep going with that because, you know, when I think about some of the really successful women pro at the 70.3 and Ironman distance, you know, Canadian women are doing really well <laughs> being from Canada. Of course I know that, <laughs> uh, but the, the Canadian women don't do well in the Olympics and yet they're doing, although Paula Finley did do well in the Olympics and then transitioned into the longer course stuff. But the Canadian women don't have a presence in the Olympics, and yet here they are in 70.3 and Ironman doing well. Uh, and and the opposite seems to be true, where the American women are doing great in the Olympic uh, distance, the ITU distances, right. uh, races. And then, you know, 70.3 and Ironman, they're kind of lagging behind the Europeans, the British, uh, the Aussies. It's, it's, yeah. it's just interesting. It's an interesting kind of uh, – and I, I agree with you. I think it probably has to do with – you know, swimming and track backgrounds that don't necessarily translate to the longer distances, which. Yeah. yeah and, um, 
I mean, you never want to make like mass generalizations, but whenever you're like, well, why is a whole country good at one thing and not another? You have to look at like where it's coming from. And like, let's take Paula Finley for an example. Like she left, she was an Olympic pipeline athlete and she left to do 70.3 because of disorganization and chaos at the federation level. Right. And then we see that like, I mean, I like have probably Canadian friends and I like, you know, Canadian, but like their federation is routinely disorganized. Right. And so you see a lot of the yeah. people kind of leave to go to 70.3 or go longer. Whereas in the U S federation funding, well, one, like the federation is not, you know, not as, not as disorganized and federation fundings or like, or national team fundings tied to Olympics. So you'll see more people kind of stay with that. I don't know. It's interesting. It's interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know why we haven't seen more like really good American women at the long course. Sarah Chu would be my pick for like the next American yeah. who's going to do yeah. really well. Yeah. Yeah. And even on the men's side, I mean, Tim O'Donnell, uh, he's, he's had great success. He's not broken through to, you know, to, I mean, Jan Verbeno like level. second last year, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, or last well, time. but I mean, he hasn't like, he's, he's been sort of nipping at the heels, right. For several years. And then last year, second big thing. Uh, but you know, there's, after him, I mean, you know, we've seen, um, I'm blanking on his name. He's, he's also been sort of top 10 a couple of times. Ben Hoffman. Ben Hoffman. Thank yeah. you. He's, he's been up there, but there it's, it's surprising to me that there's not more of a presence, uh, uh, from American men. And that, that's been going on for a while too. I mean, you know, even yeah. thinking back, you know, since the last American who won, <laughs> I'm having senior moments today. Oh, no, um, last American who won a while ago. Like I can't even remember. Yeah. But whenever they talk about that, they always talk about like, well, when you look at what are the most like, what is popular and what sports do people play? Like in Europe and Germany, I mean, Jan is getting nominated for like sports person of the year and is signing with Mercedes. That's not happening for T.O. Like that's not a thing. And so it's just sort of like when you put the money and the attention uh, over time, obviously kids then want to be that. You get more of a pipeline. You get people who like, and it just changes the perception too, like of what is possible. Like if ever, if you know someone who could win, you think like I can win. If you don't, yeah. it's harder to imagine. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we spoke a couple of moments ago about how uh, the role of women in sport has changed and is growing. And I'm curious about your thoughts about where things can continue to improve and, and how things need to continue to improve. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like a, I mean, Sort of a weird question, right? In sports, generally, is different than in triathlon, right? Like in triathlon, is like triathlon small. Triathlon is what it is. There are things to improve on, sure, but you know, most of my staff is women, most of our, right? Like it's sort of like it is. Like I, there's not. There are specific things that could get more women into triathlon. One hundred percent, that is accurate, but it's also not that unequal, disproportionate. It's not that. God, what am I? I'm trying to think of like the word for it's not wildly terrible. Um, yeah. Obviously at a larger level, like sure, there would still continue to be like pretty big inequities. Um, but that's like not, I mean, that's just sort of like, a, like does that make sense? Like there's like, there's two very different issues, like mainstream sports and then like triathlon endurance sports are like treated very differently. Yeah, no, that does make sense. I mean, I, I, I have 
spoken to several women who have made the point that triathlon is pretty good, but that doesn't mean it can't get better. No, and, and uh, it's way yeah. better than cycling. I mean, cycling is terrible. So yeah. 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 I mean, cycling just this past weekend, they were making a huge deal about it, how they're going to have a women's tour de France next year and how it was going to finish the men's tour de France and go for seven days. And I thought, and my son turned to me and he said, why is it only seven days? And I said, excellent question. That's actually <laughs> so, a really big deal because it used to only be three. And then it was only I one. know, so. I know, I know, I know. I mean, little baby steps, but I mean, the fact that we're even, you know, anyways. Um, so yes, I agree. Better than cycling, but uh, still places it could be better. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, you've been kind of frontline just like I have in terms of watching how the sport has dealt with the pandemic. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about how triathlon in general has dealt with it. And I mean, obviously this is going to come down to different federations or different organizations. Uh, you know, a lot of whining and moaning amongst people about, uh, you know, how they didn't get refunds, but personally I've always felt like, you know, WTC, for example, had excellent deferral policies. And I, I think personally they did a really good job of managing things and have made sure to retain numbers. I'm just curious what your thoughts are about how just in general, the sport has managed with all of the stuff that's gone on in the last year. Yeah, I mean, there's different things there. I think like you're saying uh, people were mad at Iron Man for not having refunds. And I think people were mad at Iron Man. That is that is definitely accurate. Um, I don't think they did a bad job. I think like they certainly, I know that there were a lot of different factors, kind of like they have 170 races in the world plus running races. I mean, that and rules are different in every single country and they were trying to manage every single one of those things. I think what they had was a customer service problem. Um, and because mostly what people were mad about was I didn't get a response or I didn't hear anything or I didn't know what was happening to my race. Um, and so that's like a kind of like a customer service perception problem is sort of like a different one than how they actually manage the events. Like how they do good events. Like I think we all like they are really good at race production. Like they know what they're doing. Um, yeah, I think that's very people, fair. Yeah. Yeah. All the people that were mad were mad because nobody responded to their email or whatever. Um, I think the other half of that is sort of like how did triathlon deal with it overall and like, what is going like, will we, like, will we survive? Right. Cause like the whole joke we kept making last year was if there are no triathlons, are there even triathletes? It's not like a thing like running that you just like go out and do. Like there were some people who did, I'm well aware of the DIY tries and people put them on, but for the most part, we need organized events to exist as a sport. Um, and I don't actually have a really good sense, like read yet on what has survived, what, like where, like I got, I got a, I got the sense that a lot of people want to do local races now, want to do smaller races, that people are very excited. Those are back, that there's definitely a desire to get back out there. And for sure, like grassroots, more towards the grassroots local, maybe mountain bike, maybe gravel end of things um less desire to do a two thousand dollar international travel event but i just right now i just don't think anyone i don't and i'm not the only, i've talked to plenty of people i'm not the only one that's who's like i don't know what's gonna happen right now i, I think we're all kind of like i can't get a good sense of the room can't tell kind of what what the direction is yeah it's interesting because so many events are sold out this year but it 
much of that just seems to be deferrals. And so they opened up a bunch of new events to try and accommodate for that. And those events didn't necessarily sell out. So uh, I feel like you do. I feel like the jury's still out. And I I think we won't know until next year. I think we'll see what happens next year if they have to start cutting races because they're not selling out, uh, then we'll have, we'll have a better sense of where things are going. I, I get the sense the local races are doing really well, at least here in Colorado. I've mm-hmm. sensed that things like Boulder Peak and um, uh, the local production. Like, yeah, the local, yeah, local, the local production companies seem to be doing really well with keeping their races sold out and putting on, as always, excellent products. Uh, you know, like you said, WTC does a great job putting on races. And as long as they continue to do that, people will do it if they want to continue doing it. Now, you know, we've seen a huge uptick in cycling, a huge uptick in in recreational things. The question is, how many of those people will, you know, convert from just recreational biking to suddenly wanting to do a triathlon? That remains to be seen. Yeah. And I know that a lot of people we're anticipating this coming boom, right? Like we even put together a ton of like how to get into triathlon stuff for this year because we thought all these people who took up biking, all these people who took up running, they are going to look for their next challenge. And I think there are those people like hundred percent anecdotally and statistically like, but I also think there's a lot of people who took up biking, took up running. And now things are getting back to normal as it is. And they're sort of they're, they're tired, right? Like it was a tough, long year and a half. Like they're not even sure they're going to keep doing the running and the biking. They're kind of like, eh, I have to go back to the office soon. I have to. And so I'm not sure that that boom is manifesting the way we hoped it might. Yeah. 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 Well, it'll be an interesting next year or two, I guess. I assuming we get out of this. I mean, right. it's, every time I think we're getting out of it, it seems like not so fast. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to take a moment just to talk about what happened last weekend. We're recording this just a couple of days after the uh, event in Germany that uh, was the, you know, <laughs> Lionel thought of, but really seemed to turn into the Jan show. Um, what, were, what was your take on the the tri battle between Lionel Sanders and Jan Ferdano? Yeah, I mean, I think Jan is like the best triathlete. I said he proved himself as the greatest triathlete ever in something and someone got mad at me because, you know, you can't really make that comparison between him and Dave Scott and Mark and they're not really. But, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously he's just like so dominant. It's kind of insane. I think he's on like another level. Um, he also turns 40 in a month. Yeah. Which is yeah. crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, what was lost in all of it to me was Lionel Sanders went 743. Oh yeah, he also did That's really well. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. The guy swam 50. Like he's turned himself into a swimmer. I mean, when he swam in Kirtland, he was out of the water with the leaders. Mm-hmm. And I think that people, you know, just because he showed up and happened to be, you know, caught in the glow that is Jan Ferdano, people have missed the fact that Lionel Sanders has quietly become, I mean, you know, just, I mean, he always was great, but he was great because he was a sensational biker and then he would run down, you know, he would be able to run to hold his place, but he's turned himself into, you know, he's got potential to be generational as well. The problem is he chose to go up against Jan, who is, you know, I mean, once in a lifetime. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he also to be super, super, I mean, now I'm going to get Lionel haters, but he gets beat by lesser athletes pretty regularly too. Like he's not equal to, and I think everyone kind of knew that going to this battle, it was like a battle, like really like it's a eight zero battle, like who, Yeah. but yes, he did a lot better 
he demonstrated uh, his big problem uh, has obviously been like nutrition management, particularly later in the run. As he said, he broke his like four straight Ironman walking streak uh, in Germany, which is good because that suggests that he's like figuring it out. And uh, he's probably going to do Copenhagen, I believe, to lock down his Copenhagen. Yeah. So we, so it'll, it would be, I would really, really like to see him, you know, perform there uh, and kind of deliver what he obviously has been like working on and testing and learning. Um, Cause yeah, I mean, he did great. Like 740, that's fantastic. He also yeah. biked like four flat, right? That's crazy. Yeah. 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 I mean, no, I mean, yeah, it, 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 to me, it was, it was really, I think you wrote, uh, I read something you wrote uh, about just how uh, brilliant this was from a marketing perspective. Uh, you know, here was something that Lionel just kind of, you know, made up out of thin air and people just kind of jumped on it. And the two of them who have been instrumental in the PTO uh, really did a great job of leveraging this and, you know, generating excitement because let's face it, they're both wildly popular amongst uh, fans of the sport. And so they, they seized on that and they created something out of nothing. And, uh, I think it was, you know, a really good thing for the sport, a really good thing for both of them. Um, and, um, you know, all of the talk that's gone on since then, you know, is this really a world record? You know, honestly, all that conversation just helps keep it in front and center of everybody's minds and lets people follow the sport even more closely. So uh, I think it's a good thing all around. Oh yeah. I don't think anyone thought it was bad. Um, it also goes to like, if you're young, like it also goes to how popular is triathlon in, in Germany. Cause clearly it's pretty bright. Like if you're Jan, they let you shut down a freeway and build your own like ramp and take over a town. Um, so it's, it's, he's obviously, you know, on another level and yeah. And I don't think, well, I know I had no appreciation of that. Like, you know, I mean, like, you know, like I'm obviously a Lionel fan and, uh, you know, uh, it, it's it, you know i know he's got his legions but if he wanted to try and do something like that it would never happen and and i also know like having been to europe for the 70.3 worlds a few years ago i mean they obviously you know view these kinds of sports very differently i mean when i did 70.3 worlds in austria they did they closed down highways for us it was it was awesome and and now to see that jan could do this just for him and lionel to shut down this whole thing was quite impressive and yes like you said i think is a testament to obviously how they view the sport much differently than i mean yeah. just just imagining like you know drivers over here how they would react to something like that right <laughs> yeah i mean he is a very big star in europe yeah um, obviously he's a big star here but he can't just like roll up to the grocery store and have people recognize him probably not so yeah probably not probably not uh i want to finish with uh just a, a quick conversation about triathlete uh, the magazine for which you are editor-in-chief um you know, recently purchased by Outside Magazine, which brings like a whole stable of uh, new offerings. It's been exciting for me, especially during the Tour de France, to be able to sign in as a member and be able to take a, a, you know advantage of all the Velo News uh, articles, mm-hmm. which were terrific. Um, where do things stand now for Triathlete as uh, as a, a a publication? You know, especially with the partnership with USAT? Uh, are you seeing a huge increase in membership numbers uh, to read articles by such outstanding authors as myself <laughs> writing for the writing a medical article? Uh, I'm kidding, of course. Um, well, I'm not kidding. I do write an article, right. but uh, I am interested in knowing uh, how things are going for a triathlete. 
Yeah, I would say to be clear, uh, we weren't purchased by outside. We purchased outside. Oh, I thought around. Pocket Media was the owner of Triathlete. Yeah, yeah, and... yeah. Pocket is the owner of Triathlete. It purchased outside. I see. Okay, yes. I got that backwards. Okay. I know, I know. This is why it always sounds like a dog bit man. But uh, yes, Triathlete um, was owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. Along when we last year purchased Backpacker, Yoga Journal, a number of things. Uh, finisher Picks is kind of the one that most triathletes know. Um, and then this year, and then we kind of just kept adding. Uh, we obviously we purchased Outside Magazine, Outside TV, Athlete Reg. You use like registration system. And then yep. last week, uh, for cycling fans, we purchased Cycling Tips and Pink Bike, big in the mountain bike space. You know about that? So I know about Cycling Tips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love their Secret Pro column. I tried to get us to do one for triathlon, but it's too triathlon's so much smaller. Yeah, yeah, didn't work. Um, but yeah, so obviously our company, uh, which has since rebranded as Outside because we're the outside. It's Outside Inc. now as our whole company. So our company um, owns a lot, a lot of stuff across the outdoor space. It's kind of the premier brand at this point in the outdoor space. I would say in cycling, for sure. It's like we pretty much own everything. Um, and so what that's good for our for our for our readers for triathletes, I think it's actually really good because we are kind of the prime audience that wants to follow the Tour de France and also have access to like GPS when we go hiking and like have tra- we have training plans and like a training plan platform, right? And we have like yoga classes. So like all I think like triathletes more than any of our audiences, actually, it's like really good for. There's certainly you know, in our, in our whole like 500 person company now, there's certainly brands where that's not the case. Like they don't care about finisher picks. They don't know what the, the yoga journal followers do not know what finisher picks is, right? Like it doesn't matter to them <laughs> that you get a free photo package from finisher picks every year. Like that's not a thing. Yeah. Whereas our athletes, I think it does like that is really relevant. Um, and especially, and yes, we partnered with USAT at the beginning of last year so that all USAT members now get like, instead of getting the old USA triathlon magazine, they get kind of a, a bigger version of our magazine with a USAT section, which at this, which just like, um, I mean, I think it's like, we all thought it was kind of like a win-win because they get, you know, higher quality content and more of it. Um, and then we get to reach like pretty much all the, all the triathletes in the country. Uh, yeah. And we've been working, I've been working a lot with USAT recently, kind of on Olympics coverage on, we put together a whole, like I just said, we put together a bunch of beginners content kind of for this year. So we put together a whole kind of site when you become even a one day member, you get pushed, you get an email saying like, welcome to the sport. Here's all this information. Want to do another triathlon? Um, So we definitely been trying to team up on kind of like streamlining a lot of our content, a lot of our resources which will ultimately be really good for that kind of like, if there is a boom coming, right? Like getting people. Cause right. I think our big challenge in triathlon, and this isn't something I'm going to solve, but like our big challenge in triathlons, someone does their first one. Cause their friends like, Hey, geez. yeah. And then, and it's usually a local, right? They usually do like whatever is down the street. And then like, they never, then that's like, that's it. Like they never do yeah. another one. They're like, all right, that was cool. Like, and I yeah. certainly have friends that's where that's the case. Like they did. They're like, okay. So keeping people kind of bringing them in and keeping them in our sport, I think is sort of our big challenge. So, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Uh, I'm I'm excited about the ever growing, uh, you know, availability of content for me to spend my time on <laughs> when I'm not training. So that's a good thing for us. Uh, I did. Well, Kelly, I was. Thank you. Uh, I just think I was laughing with. We have a, a a guy, the guy who used to who helped found Scratch. You know what Scratch is? Yeah, um, yeah. He does. Yes. Uh, he works for us now and does like food stuff. And I was talking to him yesterday about cooking videos and i was like triathletes are not going to watch cooking videos we do not have time we are training we need like 10 20 seconds okay yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. it's so true uh well kelly thank you so much for taking some time to join me today are you gonna be continuing to race this year i am signed up for alcatraz in three weeks so oh awesome well, which that's is my a, favorite that's a classic it's a yeah. great race so yeah uh That's great. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with your upcoming move. And uh, I will uh, look forward to continuing to read all the great stuff that you guys are producing. Great. Thanks. All right. Take care. And that's it for another episode. The TriDark Podcast is produced and edited by me. Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh, who just happens to be here. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode? Or do you have a question that you'd like us to consider answering on a future episode? Send Jeff an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridotcoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope that you will consider leaving us a rating and a review as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of this show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where we hope that you will visit and give a small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for us to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.